0: welcome to the human performance podcast here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people i'm your host alex young my guest on the podcast this week is tony chapman tony is a subject matter expert and recognized thought leader in the area of workplace relationships and has devoted his adult life to understanding what makes people tick how to bring out the best in people, including ourselves, and how to pass this information on in simple yet practical terms. Tony helps leaders, team members, and people from every background and diversity adopt empowering mindsets and strategies that allow them to adapt, reinvent, and transform the results they produce both personally and professionally. Tony has worked with hundreds of corporations and government agencies, including the US Secret Service, the Department of Homeland Security, Chase Bank, Estee Lauder and NASA to help them reach new heights of effectiveness by understanding themselves and others better. Tony recently completed his first book uh, called The Force Multiplier how to lead teams where everyone wins and also delivered a TEDx talk in 2018 on how to stop settling for less. We discuss how to empower teams, improve communication and hire people from diverse backgrounds with diverse opinions to maximise team performance. Hey, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alex, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So you're calling in from Manhattan, and and we've got quite an interesting kind of similar journey almost from both from scientific backgrounds, uh, which which is going to be great chatting about in a second. Um, But before we jump into that, uh, it would be awesome if you could introduce yourself and your background to all of the listeners.
1: Sure. So I'm a professional speaker and corporate relationship expert. And when I say corporate relationship expert, what that really means is when I work with an organization, I don't focus on product. I don't focus on process. I primarily focus on the human connection within the organization and outside of the organization, because I believe that that is either what gives an organization a competitive advantage or can be their Achilles heel you know, for me, my journey is is kind of strange or unique, or at least it seems like that to me. I started off as a chemical engineer, which I think that gives me a very unique perspective in this space, whether I'm dealing with how people deal with disruption or bias, even though those can often be considered soft skills and almost hard to measure. The truth is there is science and data and metrics to all of this for those who are willing to explore it and search it out. And I believe that people like yourself and myself, because of the type of scientific background that we have, we're designed to go and find that information and then to be able to take that and present it in a way that resonates to me, that's really what begins to move the needle. So for me, you know, I help organizations overcome disruption, which is clearly important right now, um, I help them deal with bias, which is clearly important right now. And then, you know, teamwork and leadership. Those are really the areas in which I help organizations and individuals.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting hearing your background. I mean, as you mentioned, quite similar to my own. Um, and and I obviously have a, a huge love of data and trying to make things as scientific as possible to help people improve. What was your sort of, I guess, you know, cre- uh, career trajectory from um, your, your sort of engineering background uh, into into kind of what you're doing now? How did that come about?
1: Well, it really happened. You know, there's a lot of intermediate steps in there. And so I left engineering to go work in nonprofit. And I did so because of some interactions I had with at-risk youth in a program I was volunteering for, and especially one particular young man who, who I saw had so much potential. And yet his circumstances made it nearly impossible that he'd be successful. I mean, to the point where he can't even go to school because he's taking care of his younger brother. He's six, you know, and I'm looking at all of this and it just, it was a paradigm shift for me. And so I left my corporate job, ended up working in a faith-based nonprofit, which I think that was really critical for me as well because I really began to delve into how people think how people work you know, from community activities to, I did a lot of one-on-one counseling. And when you do that, you really, as people bear their souls to you, you find out what is almost universal within people. You find out what really works. You find out in terms of relationship what, what helps. And so we did that for almost a decade. My wife and I together, we both left our corporate jobs and, you know, you combine that with the scientific part, that really helped me a lot. I got out of that, uh, basically we were burning out. It just, you know, the problem with nonprofit is it's nonprofit, you know, there's, right. you don't have money, you know, like it or not, you, there's some pragmatism to life. You have to have money. And so after that left, worked in the financial sector for a while, actually used to train traders for a hedge fund, as well as do some electronic foreign currency exchange stuff. And, and I realized at one point that if I were to simplify what has made me successful in each individual endeavor, it was the ability to connect the dots very quickly, and then to take something complicated and communicate it in a way that was very simple, and that connected to people and that resonated with people. And then, you know, doing that, while knowing that, as as much as narrative is important, data is important. You know, all of that really is kind of the secret sauce into why I've become who I've become.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting um, hearing you describe it like that because I think um, for for any kind of organization, especially. Ones that have quite complex technical products or offerings, um, taking that complexity and, and turning it into clarity for for both customers and for people within the organisation is absolutely critical. And then, as you say, backing it up with data is something that I'm, you know, a huge, huge fan of. Um, I mean, you you've worked with some some huge organisations from people like kind of Chase Bank, Estee Lauder, NASA, and and things like that, um, and and sort of running things like training programs uh, for for their employees and leadership. How, how do you kind of um, engage these organizations and um, what are some of the, the ways that you begin to help them as you start working with them? Normally, when I engage them,
1: my goal is to get buy in from the top. And then, once I have buy in from the top, and that may take some training or whatever, then to go down to that frontline level of leadership, because that's where all the action really happens. That's it, It's that group. And so, for me, it is going into those spaces with the managers, the supervisors, the team leads, and giving them the skills that they may be deficient in, giving them perspectives they may not have seen, training and retraining them, doing all of those things. To me, that's where you really start to move the needle. And then I work both upward from there and downward from that C suite until we kind of sandwich them in the middle. And for me, that's been where the power has been. And, you know, the funny thing, circling back to the data points, you know, the data part that we both love, what's interesting for me is I right now, almost all of my clients are highly technical, almost all of them, you know, they're PhDs in nanotechnology, they're PhDs in marine biology. And what I've learned is that those who work in those complex organizations and work with complex systems and products they love it when their people solutions are really simple and to be able to to stratify you know take things and and reduce them down to you know let's let's strip away all the fat here's what works and it's golden for them
0: and i mean um you've uh, been a, a speaker at kind of TEDx events, and, and you've written a book um, which is called The Force Multiplier: How to Lead Teams Where Everyone Wins. But um, for, for anyone who you know is thinking about human performance and listening to this podcast, w- what is um, in in your terms of force multiplier, and and how does that kind of apply to the workforce?
1: Sure. So I'll tell you a quick story. I have a friend. We're we're actually very close, and not just us our wives, our children, his children view my sons as big brothers. And so I I was very emotional when I found out that once again, he was gonna be deployed to Afghanistan for the military. And so we had an event at my house bunch of us got together and we, you know, we laughed, we cried, we shared, we ate, we did this whole thing. And there was this moment where we went around the room and people had the opportunity to share, you know, about how they would stay in touch with him, how they would make sure his family's taken care of. And then there was one person that shared. And I knew that what he was going to share was going to be impactful, but I wasn't really prepared for the impact it would actually have. Um, he's a high ranking officer in the army. And his first words were, you are what we refer to as a force multiplier because by your very presence, you make everything around you and everyone around you more valuable and more effective. And when I heard that, a light bulb went off because I've studied leadership for years. I've taught leadership at almost every level. And I've heard almost every definition of, of leadership. So I thought, but rarely do you hear Because you're there, everyone else is better. And when I heard that, to me, that's leadership. That's what makes you indispensable. Because you're there, you're getting a greater level of performance and synergy and output. That wouldn't happen if you weren't there. And so this idea of the force multiplier Although conceptually I understood it, it gave me a language that I had never heard. And I believe that should be the goal of leadership is that you're there, not just to instill vision, not just to give direction, but to functionally make others better.
0: No, that, that's, that's absolutely um, phenomenal. I mean, it's really interesting um, just ev- even looking at some of your training programs that you deliver. there's quite a broad range of of ways that you sort of engage with companies, particularly sort of focusing in just on the leadership aspect of what you do. What are some of, do you feel um, the most important components of leadership are? And and how do you sort of help organizations solidify that and improve?
1: Sure. I think starting off, think, you know, so even like we just talked about with the force multiplier, I think people have the wrong perspective of leadership. Leadership, its effectiveness is driven by relationships. And often leaders don't view themselves as ones who have to invest in the relationship that they have with those who lead. So coming in and first changing that perspective and that paradigm. Then, you know, there are some specific components. There's, you know, being a more effective communicator, really important. There's, you know, being able to deal with poor performance when it comes up. There is the ability to deal with conflict. And there's the understanding that you're leading at different levels. You're not only leading those you've been assigned to lead, you're in some ways leading and influencing your peers. And you have to learn to lead and manage your people who are technically leading you. You know, those are kind of the starting points. And then once we really get into understanding the team building aspect of it, and, you know, I'm going to use the word bias. That's kind of a buzzword right now, and it's an area I do a lot of work in, but biases, although it does include diversity and inclusion, it, in, it involves so much more. And when we start to understand how we view other people, how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if we change the way we view people, it changes how we interact with them. It changes our ability to empower them and make them more effective. All of those things are really great starting points for me.
0: Yeah, and we were kind of we were just chatting before the, the podcast kicked off um, around you know some of the ways that organizations can use data to um, you know influence bias and, and improve their employee awareness of, of what they're doing and and in some cases you know employees don't realize that, that they have some sort of unconscious bias. How how have you been kind of using data in in that aspect to sort of educate people?
1: Okay, so probably the the one that's standing out to me right now. A lot of organizations, especially in terms of bias. Now let's put it into, ver- into diversity and inclusion. Because I work with very technical organizations, what I hear almost across the board is well, we would be more diverse if we could find qualified candidates, whether we're talking about race, gender, whatever. And that's it's kind of across the board. And you know, I, I hear this for a while, and finally I just ask, okay, here's here's my concern. You are a technical company. You, you, you're you driven on data. Have you actually done a quantitative analysis on the pipeline so that we know we're not just assuming there's not qualified candidates, but now we've actually done the research, done the reports, done the assessments, and I get, you know, the deer in the headlights look when I say it? But then when they actually go and do it, they realize, oh no, the problem's not within the pipeline. They're actually our candidates and we've interviewed some some of them. We have some other issues that we have to address. And going back and, and going back to their strength, using words like quantitative analysis, something they're used to doing, but using it in an area that they hadn't considered, I found to be very effective.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, w- one of the things we've done at um, my, my current company is just actually, that in the hiring process, um, using tools like kind of regression analysis, um, which are you know often thought to be quite you know scientific and and from areas like kind of engineering or, or healthcare, and applying it to like what what are your best performers' characteristics now, and how can we look back and integrate that into the interview process, um, and and equally, I, th- I think applying it to the pipeline as you're suggesting is is incredibly sensible. Um, what what are some of uh, you know the, the challenges that you've kind of come up against um, in in sort of educating people around the uh, the value I guess of, of diversity or or how to kind of um, pick that up within an organization?
1: Sure, I think the first one is even though I can show them the data that diversity leads to higher performing teams, it's one thing to see the data, it's another thing to actually believe that that's true. And because so many organizations have not been effective in dealing with diversity inclusion, they almost naturally believe, no, it really doesn't work. And it it goes back to some of the original studies on diversity where the initial goal of diversity was to see if you can get a diverse team to perform as well as a homogeneous team, right? Well, now we know that it should outperform that. But so many people still have that mindset. And so the truth is a lot of organizations that I'm running into haven't fully bought into the performance need of it. It's more of we need to do this for optics. And that's a problem. That's probably the biggest biggest one that I've seen. The second one is the level of investment that you actually have to put into an organization to, to turn that around, the amount of training, the amount of coaching, looking at all of your communications collateral, doing you know regression analysis and assessments and all of those things. It's you know it it has to become a priority. And the problem is almost like IT, like an IT department, the challenge with them is often giving them funding because they're not looked at as a profit center. Same thing happens with diversity and inclusion because it's not viewed as a profit center. It's harder to get decision makers to funnel funds into it to do what needs to be done. And then I think the third thing is to be able to deal with the pockets of resistance because you're going to have, and it normally is people, you're going to have people who have their own little bubbles of influence who are going to resist it. And you have to make that an unacceptable stance that either, you know, at some point you have to to buy into this and turn, or or you are going to be too detrimental to our culture for you to be able to stay. Those are the three areas I see I'm having the biggest problem in dealing with this.
0: And I mean, again, I sort of draw on my my kind of like personal experience, especially for sort of working for large healthcare organisations, where uh, your patients, as an example of say you know a customer or or a user of your product, are themselves incredibly diverse, and so you really have got to make sure that you have a an inclusive diverse workforce in order to uh, provide your patients with something that's representative of, the, of their needs. Um, do, do, do you still think that, do you, do you still see that as sort of a problem in, in organizations that you work with where they don't understand sort of, you know, basic uh, value of, of, I suppose, having a, a diverse team and culture? Yeah. And I think going back
1: to the example you just used, so it's one thing. So I do work in healthcare as well. And so it's one thing to say, okay, we're getting a more diverse nursing staff, right? And so now they're they're directly interacting with the patients. But the problem is if at the administration level, you don't also have diversity, then they're making policy and procedural decisions that negatively impact the nurse's ability to do their job without understanding it, right? Because they don't hear their voice. They don't get their perspective, and so I think it's critical. And you know, you look quantitatively, you see more diverse and inclusive organizations outperform. You know, the SP 500 over three and five year periods. You have you know quantitative da- data that says they're higher performing. They have better retention. They have more engagement, they're more resilient, they better serve their customers, so they have higher customer service ratings. All of those numbers are there, right? But it's, if you don't have a diverse decision-making group, then A, they're separate from it, and then B, even if they try to make the decision, their blind spots are so big, they don't realize the unintended consequences of their decisions.
0: Yes, an absolutely fantastic point. I, I think, um, exactly as you say, having that from the kind of leadership through all the elements of, of an organisation is absolutely critical. Um, I, I suppose, you know, w- when you're going in at sort of top level, as you mentioned earlier, um, to sort of initiate some of uh, your, your sort of training and, and impactful ways of transforming organisations, how important and, and, and I guess, equally, how do you go about ensuring that the employees themselves kind of engaged with um, both what you are doing, but then also what the organization is doing, and how does that sort of help them develop their, their overall performance?
1: Well, and I want to make sure I'm answering the right question, because I want to make sure I understood this right. Um, if you're talking about, is the employee group already engaged in general, or engaged with the, this direct new direction?
0: Well, I, th- I think both. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get and keep your, your employees to be engaged and identify if they're not? And equally, how do you sort of add in a transformative element um, that, that with the employees, right?
1: Sure. You know, here's the thing. Engagement's a funny word because it's a word that we use a lot and we rarely define, right? We, we, more are, we are more likely to define either what engagement looks like or what engagement isn't. And so I have a very simple definition of engagement that I use. Engagement is simply how much people care. And because they care, what they're willing to do. To me, that's engagement. So when you talk about emotional commitment, rational commitment, you know, um, uh, discretionary, effort, all of that stuff, it comes down to how much do people care. And so number one, if they're not engaged coming in, I need to know why. Sometimes the solution that we're we're implementing will actually fix some of that why. If not, that has to be addressed, right? You it's hard to get a group that's disengaged. To go through any type of major change and not take a big hit, right? So you've got to get people to care. That means you have to get them to care about the vision and the mission. You have to get them to care about the ethics of the organization. But most importantly, the number one driver of engagement is an employee's relationship with their direct supervisor. And so that kind of comes back to, you have to have leaders who invest in the relationship so that people care. And you even see this in sports, you know, you see Athletes who will switch from one team to another, and all of a sudden, they become high performers. And it's not that they were consciously trying harder or less before. It's now something has clicked where they care more, they believe more. And we know that that mental state drives human performance. And so it really comes down in almost all these situations to being able to say, okay, let's look at leadership at the different levels and how effective they are. And what we also find out statistically is often up until about the, you know, VP level or so, engagement doesn't necessarily go up as you go up the chain of command. It's It stays the same, right? So you have disengaged frontline employees who are contributors, you might also have disengaged managers. And so what's their relationship like with their direct supervisor? And that's why I'm a corporate relationship expert. You go in and you start to fix those relationships and you reopen the channels of communication and you resolve conflict and you empower and you do all of those things. It's amazing how much you see engagement grow, performance grow, retention grow, all of these things happen. And now you're able to get them to buy into whatever else you're doing. But without that engagement, especially if there's been other attempts to do things and they haven't gone well people carry so much baggage into these new uh, efforts that they just naturally are like okay this isn't going to work let's just ride this thing out until it dies like the last one and so that's why it's all important to tie that together
0: right and i guess you know a lot of what you're talking about is it stems from kind of having a really strong company culture as well as a uh, a data-driven strong hiring process onboarding process that that is you know selecting people who who are very sort of mission and, and goals focused and uh want to kind of improve around your your company vision uh, are, are there any other kind of i guess you know hacks or tricks that that leaders can look at to you know build up a team that, that is really sort of focused on that overall mission and therefore engaged? well
1: number one, what you just said is really important. i mean i'm talking a lot about that culture part of it, which is really defined by the relationships, but it it is the quantitative side and the hiring side combined with it, right? You have a great culture, but you hire bad people, you have a disaster. If you hire great people, but you infect them with a bad culture, you have a disaster. So both of those really tie in. I think from there, for for the basic leader is simple stuff, honestly. It is your own personal attitude because we know statistically emotions are contagious. And there's tons of studies that show you can predict the the productivity output of a team by their emotional state. So if the leader has a certain emotional stability and a positive outlook, that infects a team. Same thing happens if they're negative, that infects a team. Being able to, you know, you mentioned hiring great people, but then being able to keep the standards high. So when people come in, there's an expectation that people will perform at a high level, because most of us, we end up over time, because we're very communal, we we will eventually assimilate to the culture that we're given. And so having that strong performance culture, as well as relational culture is really big. And then, you know, there's simple things like understanding how to lead different personalities and making sure that, you know, you're you're rewarding great work. You know, there's a lot of statistics that one of the number one drivers of employee engagement is to reward when there's a job well done. And whether that's, you know, financial reward or even verbal, you know, praise and recognition is a big driver. So all those things become kind of the simple, you know, here's how you do it once you're in.
0: And just sticking on the kind of data side, I mean, when, when you're going in and kind of diagnosing organizations, let's say, in something like team building or employee engagement or even leadership, what, what are some of, I guess, you know, the tools that you use to do that? Are, are there any kind of, um, you know, sort of assessment tools that you use or, or any technology? Or is it very much sort of you looking at organizations or, or them bringing you the problems? So first, I uh, personality
1: assessments. I'm big on that. And in fact, I, I created my own part of the book. And mostly because I've been working with personality assessments since 1996. And so I've written them, I've been exposed to some that are very esoteric. So I, I know those kind of like the back of my hand and I know what works and what doesn't. And to be able to show you know, how these assessments work, then I think cultural assessments, right? and designing cultural assessments for each organizations. And some of those are just pulse surveys. Some of those are a lot deeper, but then to be able to go back and say, okay, here is where your um, your employee population really falls. Here's what they view, here's what they see, here's how they really feel. And to be able to do that from a data perspective always helps us. And, and it's a combination what I'm learning. So you and I, are more likely to be affected by data, and rightly so. But I'm also realizing that with all that data has to come the story and the narrative. And so, okay, so, you know, here's how they feel. Let me give you some examples that were given. And so now we kind of paint that narrative picture. Um, So there's truthfully, and it depends on whether I'm also coming in to deal with, you know, first dealing with bias, or dealing with disruption and change or dealing with leadership, there's always going to be a lot of data involved and a lot of data given. Like I, I pretty much make people drink from a fire hose of data at the beginning, just because what that does is it sets the tone of, okay, this is real. And this is something worth going after.
0: And I I guess for, you know, for, for anyone listening who maybe they, they, have have never done so, or maybe they've kind of experimented with things like sort of personality testing of employees, either at hiring or as kind of ongoing coaching. Um, how could you kind of help them navigate that minefield? Because there are so many tests, and often some of them can, can be quite complex, and and some of them perhaps aren't as effective of others. You know, with your experience, what do you think is most impactful, and and how are they best used?
1: Yeah, by my book. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, we're kind of kidding. You know, half of my book is actually on this very topic the truth is this, most personality tests are good at what they do. And the question is, is how complex do you want it to be? I have learned often it's less about the guitar and more about the player, right? It's the artist. It's not. And and I, I say that the person's knowledge of actually using an assessment. And so you could come in with, you know, a disc or a true colors or the force multiplier, whatever. And it could be very effective if you actually know how to use it. And if you integrate it within the culture, because a lot of times what happens is people take the test, then they put it on their, or the assessment, they put it on the, the side burner and keep moving forward. It's like, no, 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 no this assessment is here to actually change the lens in which you look at each other and to better connect you. And so that's what I've seen. I think you should start with a simple test. I really do. I don't think something super complex, unless you're going to have a long-term set of consultants who can actually use it. I just think that it causes more harm than good. And again, I believe that especially if we're dealing with technical organizations, the simpler the solution, the more implementable it becomes. Um, the key is, is just proving to everybody that it's still as effective as the more complex test, because unfortunately, people often equate complexity with effectiveness, and that's really not necessarily true.
0: And I mean, with with some of the kind of personality testing, uh, to a degree, you you can kind of integrate that into your, um, hiring process and sort of job description characteristics to try and uh, you know reduce some of the things that, that you mentioned earlier like conflict from from happening between sort of team members um, I, I guess just kind of on the conflict side um, conflict will happen kind of in in organizations but um, for, for various reasons what are some of the the, the major sort of reasons that you've seen and, and how can some of those be avoided do you think?
1: Well, sure. So some of it comes down to personality, right? I think sometimes we view people as difficult when they're just different, different. And so you have that part of it. You have conflicting agendas. So that is a major source of, of conflict. If, if I feel like we should be heading this way and another person, no, I absolutely am certain we should be going another way. That is often a source of conflict. A lot of times conflict comes down to poor communication, that when we don't communicate with one another effectively or completely, it gives the other person the chance to fill in the dots and they do so however they want to with whatever preconceived notions that they have. And so those are some great starting points. And then the fourth is conflict is often ignored because it's viewed as inherently bad. And I don't believe that conflict is inherently bad. I think that conflict is inevitable, but if you deal with it when it's small, then you deal with it before it becomes dangerous.
0: And I mean, I mean, w- one of the other things I know that you um, have sort of spoken about and are sort of a big advocate, a big advocate for, is kind of accountability. And, and certainly, um, again, it's it's along the lines of what we've been speaking about already. When you're sort of building teams or empowering your your workforce and your employees and their performance, um, how how can you sort of you know really? get a culture of, of accountability and ownership built into to any of the teams within the organization that you're building yeah
1: i'm going to say this in a way that sounds too simple um enforce it you know i, I think that the problem with accountability is it's not enforced equally some people are given a pass some people are it's, are, are are held accountable more stringently and sometimes it's just especially if you have people who are, conflict avoiders, it's just not done at all in a reasonable way. And I believe, number one, I don't think you can be effective at anything without some level of accountability. And I think accountability has to be presented in a way that it is helpful and not you know, a burden. You know, when I have on my car, I have a blind spot indicator. I'm not mad when that thing goes off. I know that it's protecting me that's really how we should view accountability. So once we have that right mindset, then it's actually going in. It's just enforcing it. It's, I think quite often, a large number of the policies and procedures are there. They're just not enforced.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, um, my, I guess my, you know, my own experience of of both kind of, uh, you know, being in and then also kind of running teams in a you know, healthcare kind of um, medical environment, and also in, in sort of business. Um, one of the the main things I kind of learned was the you know the need to really allow um, your you know your team members and any, anyone you're delegating things to, to feel kind of empowered to do things, but also giving them enough room to make mistakes on on things you're delegating to them. Um, w- with I guess the caveat to that is is you know with a deadline to to get something done and holding them accountable to get something done. Um what, what is it, i mean do you have any other kind of i guess tips for for people within organizations at the moment where they could kind of you know diagnose some issues with their with their team or how they're taking ownership of problems and and how they could start to kind of come to a resolution around that. So I can I come back to this delegation thing you just mentioned. Um
1: I think that there's a difference between holding somebody accountable for the output and holding them accountable for the methodology, right? And so I absolutely believe that we need to empower people and and give them the guidance on the way, but then hold them accountable for the very things that they commit to and that we agree upon. You know, when I think of delegation, I just wanna come back to that for a second. You know, I think a lot of times managers, especially inexperienced managers, delegate ineffectively because they don't understand the art and science of it. So before you delegate, what you have to do is you have to ask, okay, how much do I trust this person? And there's two, two areas in which I have to trust them. Do I trust that they are reliable? And then do I trust that they have the knowledge, skills, and ability to actually do the job, right? Now, if I fully trust both of those things, then I can kind of give them direction and let them go. If I trust that they're reliable, but I don't trust their knowledge, skills and ability. Well, that's this is the developmental issue. So now I have to train them and give them the, the development. And maybe that is actual training. Maybe it's, that's having them shadow me so that they actually see how it's done effectively. If I trust their knowledge, skills and ability, but I don't trust their reliability, then I have to regulate them. That's where I'm giving them different benchmarks along the way. And I'm doing check-ins to make sure that we're we're on target and I'm creating a level of, whether it's discipline or you know, it's really being reliable that I know that it's going to get done. But what I'm trying to do in both of those areas is I'm working towards a space where I trust them in terms of reliability and in terms of you know knowledge, skills, and abilities, KSAs. By doing that, that's where I'm getting the higher performance and I'm creating that level of accountability, right? Because now I can say, okay, hey, I know I can assign this to you. I know it's. I'm going to check in with you, and I know it's going to be done a certain way to a certain standard. But if I haven't done those things, then it's really kind of a crapshoot. What's going to be the output?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic point. Really, really well made. Um, and and you know, I think a lot of people, especially in kind of you know early stage tech companies, for example, um, being able to to let go of certain things and, and delegate appropriately. Um, it is absolutely critical. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, my, myself included with some of my early companies found it really difficult actually just kind of letting go and, and sort of trusting um, employees and trusting the process. R- really, really interesting.
1: Well, and, and rightfully so, right? I mean, the, the two the two reasons I get why we don't uh, delegate. Number one, I could do it faster myself. And number two, I want it done right. And normally by right, they mean my way. And that's why it's important to have that developing, to have that regulating, to have those things so that even in the in the beginning, it is going to be more difficult. In the beginning, it's going to take more time. In the beginning, you know the results are going to be more questioned, questionable, I'm sorry. But if you take the time and to develop those who need developing, regulate those who need re- regulating, there comes a point where now I can just assign something and I can do it You know, without worrying about it or looking over my shoulder. And and at the same time, what I've also done now is I've replicated myself. And so now I have other people who are capable of doing these things. And it doesn't have to always just fall on me. But it's, you know, you have to go through the journey of actually making that happen. It's never going to happen automatically. It's never going to just fall into place.
0: And I mean, obviously, the the world at the moment is is kind of very different to to where it was last year with regards to kind of, um, you know, employee uh, workplace uh, environments and so forth. How have you sort of seen things uh, change with regards to kind of, you know, some of the problems people are coming to you with uh, in in sort of, I guess, the remote working environment and sort of COVID uh, world that we live in at the moment? Uh,
1: Too many meetings,
0: (laughs) you know, people (laughs) (laughs) people
1: are Zoomed out. Because what's happened is there are a number of managers because they can no longer look over their cubicle desk and see you. They have to have meeting after meeting to constantly check in with you. And what's happening is this great, but all those meetings are getting away away of things actually getting done. And so it's like, okay, let's just stop that. I think, so you have that part of it. You know, it's interesting if you look at Gallup, So over the last decade, engagement has been slowly increasing. And then when COVID hit, it shot up. And partly you'd have expected that because we've always known that remote working is more effective. You know, if you have some level of remote work, people are just more productive working remotely. It's fascinating in general, not every situation, but in general. But then it plummeted. In June, right, and it it didn't just lose what it gained this year. It's gone back to the levels of like two thousand thirteen, if I remember correctly. And a, a lot of that has happened because we're having a lot of meetings, but we're not communicating effectively, and we're not checking in with how people are actually doing. We're checking in with the work that they're doing, and I, I say that because people have to realize. What we're dealing with right now is not having remote workers. What we're dealing with is trying to navigate disruption in a remote environment. And so people are now dealing with an inordinate amount of change and an inordinate amount of stress and very different responsibilities and still trying to stay productive while working. And that has to change how we lead. We have to, we have to still have... A very performance, you know, oriented culture and mindset, but our concern for the person and the individuality of the situations. You know, some people are great example. A client um, had one of their one of their people basically go off on a client, right? <laughs> and this is so abnormal. That person never does anything like that. Like, why would they do that? People are up in arms, and I said, well. Do you know what's going on with them? Do you know that you know they moved here from another country, they live by themselves, they've been isolated for four months. He recently wanted to go get a um, colonoscopy and was denied because he doesn't even have someone to pick him up from the hospital. This person is completely stressed out and completely lonely, and that doesn't necessarily justify the response. But if you don't take that into consideration in your leadership right now, you're going to fail in your relationship with this person. And so, you know, it's it's just a different animal and it's almost it's almost like as a parent when you send your kids off to school, now you got to see what actually you built into them and also your relationship changes.
0: Yeah, I mean it's, it's a fantastic example. And I think um you I mean we've seen things like this sort of stress and, and mental health issues rise during the kind of covid period and I think uh, particularly people where they're working from home and they've got their sort of family surrounding them and uh, you know that they're, they're in in environments that aren't you know potentially sort of built for work um, everyone's kind of got to remember that and sort of work around it and I think you're absolutely right I mean one of the the things that we sort of often say is that uh, any organization especially the leadership should be working for their employee employees and, and helping them as much as possible and understanding their individual needs, um, whatever they may be you know not just in this time but I think um, obviously the, the current situation has really shone a light on that
1: yes. Absolutely. And, you know, as leaders setting up mechanisms for people, you know, for a little bit, it became popular to do the Zoom happy hours or the social, you know, social happy hours or whatever on whatever platform you're using. Those are really important or setting up, you know, one of the things I've been advising organizations to do now, because, you know, so much of what happened at work happened spontaneously. We'd bump into somebody, in the corner, we used to call it water cooler chatter, right? Water cooler talk, but to be able to set up, you know, we have the ability with technology to set up, you know, an open unmonitored room on zoom or on Slack or whatever, where people can just meet and talk and decompress or whatever, what that's done for organizations, cultures that have done it has been phenomenal because, you know, now, like you said, people look for me in particular, COVID hits, my wife and I had downsized to a two-bedroom condo in Manhattan. All of a sudden, college is closed. We're functioning out of a two-bedroom condo. I have a 22-year-old and a 20-year-old in my office. That's now their bedroom. My wife is using our bedroom as an office. And I'm literally doing keynotes from our living room, right? And it's that was reality for a lot of people. And to give them the outlets, emotionally to give them the camaraderie that they need that's going to be critical from helping them to maintain their sanity reduce their stress and also to be good contributors
0: and Tony, as, as we sort of kind of you know uh, wind things down um towards the end of these kind of podcasts uh, we always ask everyone to give an example of a human performance hero that's either influenced you or you feel just has an amazing example of, of human performance um uh, really interested in understanding who who yours might be.
1: Yeah, you you asked me that right before we logged on, and I was sitting here trying to think who is that person for me, and I, I'm I'm a little struggling. I'm a little bit struggling with it. So I'm gonna go with, gosh, I'm gonna go with Alexander the Great, and I'm I'm gonna go with it. You know, from a historical standpoint, the fact that he was able to fight against the the real world, the known world, the, no, you know what, I'm going to go with one of my mentors. Sorry about that. I'm going to just do it this way. You know, one of my first mentors is the one who really helped me to see the importance of relationships. And his name is Byron Parson. And what was interesting is he was the first African American in the position that he was in. And I relate to that because I was the second African-American to go to my college, you know, program that I was in and to watch him handle with grace, all of the resistance, all of the fighting, and to still create one of the most high performing teams in the history of our organization. To me, that is special. And it's very reminiscent of how I feel about President Obama, but I would say Byron Parson to see him do that, to see him, you know, many of these ideas that I have, they're based off conversations that either where he gave me the idea or we kind of came to these realizations together. He really in many ways modeled this human dimension of leadership and how to get people to perform highest because of the relationship. I think it was just very special.
0: Oh, I mean, what a fantastic example. That's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's absolutely you know, spectacular. Um, t- Tony, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you on the podcast. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners would be really interested in some of your kind of collateral material or potentially reaching out. Um, where could they go to find out a little bit more about what you do? Well, my last name is
1: C-H-A-T-M-A-N, Chapman. Um, you go to my website, TonyChapman.com you know, in this day and age, you can Google Tony Chapman and you can find me, but my website has links to all of my social media, everything that I'm coming up with, including, you know, there's some new ideas and a new community I'm starting to build, which I think is going to even have a greater impact than all the work I'm doing right now. So TonyChapman.com should be your first stop.
0: That's awesome, and I'll just put a little plug in as well for your, you know, your TEDx talk, which will be searchable on yes. YouTube, which, which is awesome um, for anyone just kind of, you know, who wants to jump in and just get a quick rundown about you and everything you're doing. And then also, um, we kind of mentioned it, but your um, book, The Force Multiplier, uh, has a lot of the uh, key information around sort of, yeah, everything, personality testing to a lot of the stuff we we've touched on. Um, Thank you. Which is again available on Amazon, which which is which is great. I picked up a copy before we. Uh, started speaking, and it, it's got some really, really good tips and tricks, lots of really practical insights, actually, as well.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Well, so we'll you, it's been an absolute pleasure connecting. And uh, hopefully next time I'm back out in the US in Manhattan, uh, we can go and grab a coffee and, uh, and catch up in person.
1: Would love to look forward to it.